Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Chris Stein of Blondie. Chris, so great to have you. Thanks, Bob. I'm always, I'm a fan, you know, it's what you, I guess you've gathered over the years, but uh, I appreciate your missives. So when we were setting this up, you had a busy schedule. So what was going on there? We had just spent the last three days working up new music. So that's, we're, we're very slow. The Blondie situation is glacial in its forward motion, and uh, we're, you know we're starting to get it going now. Let, let's break it down. What's the process? How do you decide to record? What do you do before you get in the room? We are uh, collect material. People, you know, submit demos. We take stuff from outside sources, wherever it's coming from. Uh, then the 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 this time me and the keyboard player and the other guitar player and debbie get together do you start at home alone do other people start at home alone and then just bring it to the rehearsal room or do you send it to other members and then they give their feedback yes the latter i not necessarily feedback everybody just kind of knows what's good but i do demos on my home equipment and then send it around. And we wind up we wind up with a big online list. This time we had like twenty-five or so pieces that we pick and choose from. And those are finished songs? Uh, no, demos stuff, semi finished. I don't mean the recordings, but the songs themselves. No, no, definitely not. Mm-hmm. Debbie does a lot of the a lot of the I, I don't write a lot of lyrics, for example. Debbie I give Debbie uh unfinished lyrical ideas with melodies, with melody lines that are suggestions of melodies, and she develops the lyrical ideas. Okay. When you gather physically, what happens? Then we get together. We have By then, we have a few of these things uh, chosen, and we just go over them. So we went into these last three days. We had seven 
things that we picked out and we just learned them and go over the chords and like that. Okay, needless to say, the music business has changed radically from your late 70s, early 80s heyday. And a lot of, as they say, I hate this term, but I'll use it anyway, heritage acts don't even record new music. What's the motivation to record new music today? Oh, for us, it's just what we do. And it's just like the shark moving forward. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it. I hear so much modern stuff that I like. I, you know, my, what I've, I've said over the years is that 50% of the stuff you hear is always crap, but nobody remembers the, the bad stuff. You know, people are only familiar with the good material. Maybe it's a different ratio. I'm not sure. But uh, I, I hear a lot of modern stuff that's inspirational. I hear things that inspire me, styles, whatever. And uh, it's just, you know, it's what we'd like to try to stay fresh in that respect. So, what are you hearing that's turning you on now? Yeah, all kinds of all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's gratifying. There are all these female fronted bands that I like. You know, there's uh, you know Surfboard and Sunflower Bean and Churches and all these girls are out there doing their thing. Um, I I personally have been a huge fan of modern Latin music for over 15 years. I've been a reggaeton and cumbia fan. And I knew that stuff was going to cross over. And now it's ubiquitous. Those grooves are very sexy to me. Uh, the dembo beat, you know what a dembo beat is? Yeah. But I want to explain to the audience what it is. It's just a boom. boom. It's, it's, it's the reggaeton beat. It's very specific form it's almost like a 12 bar blues in its specificity and uh i just as soon as i started hearing that stuff years ago i was really turned on it really took a long time to cross over and then you know and then we had finally we have things like lean on and some of these great tracks that are dipping into that groove a little bit okay when we were growing up music was driving the culture and if you were interested in new music you could just turn on the fm radio station certainly am before that how do you discover all this stuff or you make it actively are you doing it me i i pick up stuff from the weirdest online sources just you know looking at tiktok videos or people's instagram stories and i'll hear two bars of something that really gets to me and then I will shazam it and find out what it is. So for an old fucker, I am very adept in all this stuff. I've been doing computers for a very long time. I started in the 80s. So uh, I have good skills with the software and hardware. Well, let's bifurcate here. Leave the skills aside for a second. You talk about TikTok. Irrelevant of knowing how to work the machine or the phone, do you spend a lot of time on TikTok, Instagram, et cetera? Insta- yeah, Instagram and Twitter, yeah, is my main. Well, I certainly see on Twitter all the time, and you have a sense of humor, and you talk about your photographs. But what is the inspiration? You're expressing yourself on Twitter, but in TikTok and Instagram, do you want to take the pulse of the nation, or are you just rawly interested? Instagram, I just like the graphic aspect of it, and it was a great place to start doing the photographs and I'm not like a huge influencer or any of that kind of nonsense, but I like TikTok, how it works with all these kids, you know, sharing audios 
and often sharing original audios. And my daughters get into it, and they're always coming up to me and showing me some crazy little bit. And that's fun. And I foresee, I was just telling the guys in rehearsal yesterday, I'm foreseeing 19-second songs now as probably the new frontier. I don't know that we'll be doing any, but it's probably coming. Uh, you know, and I think, yeah, I guess you got to blame, blame fucking Vine for all this uh, short attention span. Right, right, right. Have you actively tried to get any of Blondie's music, past or present, used on TikTok? Yeah, yeah. So uh, TikTok's, yeah, Heart of Glass is all over the place. For That was trending several times with whatever, you know, kind of visuals it was evoking in little kids. But it's out there. Okay, so you participate on Twitter. Do you follow a lot of people on Twitter, too? And do you spend time reading Twitter? Yeah, yeah, sure. What kind of people you follow? What are you looking for? A lot of left-wing political people. Uh, but I, I pay attention to what the right-wing maniacs are on about also. And, you know, a lot of the artists and film people, directors, writers, etc., uh, it's it's a long list. I have really great people following me that I'm, you know, I'm not going to flex about, but I do have, I have followers that I'm proud of. So, what motivates you to tweet? Uh, it's, just, it's kind of this hive mind. I mean, it's not it's not a real hive mind, but it's I call it the false hive mind. But I like the fact that whatever you're thinking now, somebody else is going to be writing the same goddamn thing somewhere. If there's almost no individual commentary, and the, you know the fact that it's so all over the place too, but I mean, I, you know, I was up at one in the morning following the Ukrainian situation, and the immediacy of it is really fucking, you know, intense. Also, uh, you know, you have people there commenting on what's going on, and that's you know, it's heavy duty. It's not. It, it's changed a lot of things in the culture, the immediacy of the internet. Okay, so you follow a lot of left-wing people and you check in with the right. What's your hope for democracy or autocracy in the world today? Yeah, I don't know. It's a really, it's a rough time and it's a rough call. And I didn't, you know, you and I have been through a lot of all that stuff back then. Uh, you know, I was right at the, when the thugs tried to levitate the Pentagon without Allen Ginsberg, I was like right there sitting by the stage and got tear gassed and all this stuff. <coughs> so I don't know. It doesn't, it's, it's, I've never seen it so 50, 50 before with such a balance of maybe it's all going to go to shit or maybe it's going to be okay. It's usually there's usually a little bit more of a pendulum swing to one side or the other. Generally, the things will be okay. You know, we all lived through Martin Luther King, uh, a lot of positivity, you know. So to see the stuff that's going on now is it's frustrating. But I'm continually amused. My general outlook on life is bemusement. And there's a lot of I, I, it's funny what goes on, too, in the world. You know, you have children, so some of it's not that funny. I don't have children, I'll die, you know. Yeah, I know. I talk to them about that stuff, about 
you know, potential for a bleak future. I don't know how much they get of that, but they're, they're aware of current events, certainly. Like, I'm really, you know, I'm really amused now that all these right-wing guys who are anti-Marxist and calling, you know, AOC a Marxist, Leninist, whatever, you know, socialist monster are now sort of supporting this Russian invasion, which is, it's, it's crazy, but it's also very funny on a certain level. I agree, but I was thinking about it just before we started. Is it literally black and white? Since Biden is taking one side, they have to take the other? Or do you think philosophically that's the side they're on? No, 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 for sure. It's just, well, partisan politics. It has nothing to do with the fucking... I mean, do you think... I don't think Bill O'Reilly believes any fucking thing he ever said. I think he's just doing it for the bucks. I think maybe some of the other ones, you know, believe it. Maybe Carlson is genuinely that. But there's there's just as... You know, I briefly met Ann Coulter. I think... A lot of these guys are just doing it for effect and for uh, the check. Okay, Bill Maher goes on that he's friends with Ann Coulter. You know, with Tucker Carlson, I'd just like to get him alone. And Laura Ingram would say, off the record, you really believe this shit? So you were talking to Ann Coulter. Did you think she was just throwing, you know, bombs to have a career? I saw her in a very show-busy situation, that w- and it was very obvious that she was part of the showbiz milieu. So, I mean, I could say that. Well, I guess for me, you know, I remember the 60s and 70s. I remember going to college. You could literally point out the Republicans on campus. You literally knew who they were. And there were a handful. And I hear from them all day long. The fact that a very significant part of the youth are Republicans and supporting the Fox News agenda is just mind-blowing to me. Well, because that's what they're exposed to, though. It's just it's just indoctrination and not being exposed to another side. I, you know, I was lucky. I was, when I was a kid, I was, you know, I, I, my parents were Reds. The FBI famously came to my house when I was a baby and talked to my old man, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I was, I had both sides. The FBI came to your house. Do you remember that actually happening? No, I don't remember. I remember my father being really creeped out, though, and telling me, you know, he gave them the name of some guy who was dead and they were happy that he was forthcoming and left. Okay. So, you know, there are those famous stories of the Eagles raising money for Jerry Brown for president and Irving A's, Jerry wanted to come on stage and Irving said, no. Okay. The acts were bigger than the politicians. A lot of years since then. So where is the place, if any, for music in today's topsy-turvy political world. Um, yeah, no, I don't, you know, there's just so much of it. What do, you know, 10,000 songs an hour uh, go on to the... Like 60,000 a day, they say, on Spotify. Whatever the hell it's supposed to be, yeah. So, uh, it's it's difficult. Plus, I, everybody, plus with the with the society being so split down the middle and pulling in two directions... People are scared to alienate their uh, fan bases, I think, with heavy political statements. Um, you know, it's just a, the, the obvious stuff I'd like to see. And then also making a political statement, you know, be it on Twitter or whatever, 
by an artist just immediately gets shut down by the opposing group. It doesn't matter, you know, I mean, you come out and you say something that's meaningful to your fan base or your <coughs> political affiliation, but the other guys are just going to say, oh, fuck that guy, you know, or whatever. My guy's better. So it's kind of, it almost is just blowing into the wind. I don't know how to make a meaningful impact on the culture politically, really, except in little increments. You know, that's why I go on Twitter and say stuff. But again, I most of my stuff is is in a humorous vein. Are you worried at all about going on record about anything and alienating your audience? No, not really. I don't think so. Because I, I you know, I think, I mean, Blondie fans are not going to be surprised how we stand on LBQT rights, you know, or et cetera. Um, or international politics. I don't think it's going to, nobody's going to be surprised by how we, what, what we think. What did you do for the two years of the pandemic? I wrote a memoir. I wrote a lot of a memoir, which I'm pitching now. This, that was nice. I didn't do a hell of a lot of music. I only did a little bit, but the, the writing was a full on project that took a year or more. But, um, you know, I'm, just finishing that up now and we are pitching it and did you write it yourself or do you have a ghostwriter co-writer no i write it myself and i when we get a publisher i'll start dealing with an editor so usually when you start to write you remember stuff that you didn't think of until you start to write so were there any interesting things that came to you as you're writing that you forgot maybe i you know i had to research a lot of it i was referring to other blondie books that had the bones and the uh chronology people who did that work for me which was good and i kept having to refer to the blondie gig list which is online a list of all the shows we've done stuff like that was very helpful i don't know how much stuff i didn't remember but i you know i talked to people and got some anecdotes and things that were unique it is it more of a straightforward tale or does it have the sense of humor you employ on twitter yeah yeah no i i tried to make it lighthearted, but it did have to you know i did i didn't realize how much you would have to delve into addiction um specifically that became it became a theme in there because you know we, we, got, we all got really fucked up for a certain period and there were a lot of ups and downs so how did you become addicted just from doing drugs always and from not having much information about it in that period in the 70s and uh you know emulating our heroes be it you know burroughs or lou reed or whatever and only seeing the cool side of it somehow and not the downside okay well we all smoked marijuana hash what was your progression from there well we just did a lot of coke which was kind of uh, okay with the powers that be. And then it started dabbling and we smoked dragons, you know, how you do that on tinfoil, right. smoking heroin. And that led into just regular heroin usage. Didn't last too long, a couple of years, but then, you know, and that's what, how I wound up with that weird protect, protracted illness because I uh, screwed my immune system really badly from doing this stuff okay so you're smoking heroin whatever you start injecting heroin in your mind 
don't you somewhere say, wait a second, what am I doing? After a while, the, the what am I doing came from going through withdrawals and from walking on the street and seeing everybody around me being normal and feeling so alienated from the normalcy of the rest of the world. Okay, so, you know, being a rock star is tough. You play to, you know, 20,000 adoring fans. You get on the bus with the same five characters that you've known your whole life. It takes you hours to come down from the hit. A lot of people start taking drugs to cope with the road. What drove you to heroin? Well, yeah, no, we, I mean, we, there was a tremendous amount of pressure. We, you know, you have to remember what the fucking period was like in the 70s. It was still the Wild West out there. Uh, it wasn't like, there wasn't the smoothness that we have today when we were doing shows. It was, it was rugged. And we had a lot of bad representation and et cetera, et cetera. And again, a lot of ups and downs financially. I wasn't, I trust, trusted a lot of people I shouldn't have trusted necessarily and um, should have been better. That was probably the, I do blame my endless weed smoking on my lack of uh, attention to business, possibly. But I, I don't have any kind of a head for mathematics. But I didn't pay a lot of, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the business stuff. I just left it with people. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the year plus that you were a heroin addict, you know, people talk about scoring. By the same token, you have a certain amount of money, you're a rock star. How did you get your dope, which you need, you know, multiple times a day? Yeah, no, initially we had people delivering, but as things declined generally and we ran out of money and sold our fancy living quarters, um, you know, I was crawling around. And then I went, you know, after, after, even after that, even after I got off being a junkie and went on to, I was on a methadone program for many years. And I, then I became a full on cocaine addict once again, but much more so than I had been in the early days. So, so that was another thing I had to fight off. Okay, so how did you stop taking the methadone? You said at the past tense, were you still taking it? No, no, it was, yeah, I finally just, I, I just tapered it off on my own very gradually over a long period. It's kind of insidious stuff. But the methadone is also a great cushion for, for cocaine use. And many people I knew on the methadone program were all using coke all the time because it, I, had, I had a doctor, I had a really great doctor, a methadone doctor who swore that methadone was an antipsychotic and that she was aware of lifelong schizophrenics who were cure, cured by methadone, but that, of course, it can't, you know, it's too restricted to be experimented with in these psychiatric situations, as, uh, you know, are many drugs in America. But uh, so, in that respect, the antipsychotic properties are kind of obvious for people doing cocaine you'd get less paranoid and less insane from doing coke when you're on methadone but the high was still as good yeah you know then but then cocaine addiction you know it's i when we were starting out and we we're in the midst of the cocaine of the late 70s and early 80s nobody thought it was addictive but right you know of course it is and it you feel horrible if you're using daily and then you stop, you're crashing and feeling slugged out and unhappy. So it's that. But yeah, with methadone, it's uh, it's more, a lot of aspects of it are tolerable. So how long did you do cocaine? What period was this? And how'd you get off the cocaine this time? After we stopped doing the Blondie situation, which really just kind of fizzled out, then I was doing coke for... I don't know, you know, four or five years, probably, maybe even longer. Um, and then we started putting the band tech back together. Then I met my great wife, and she was uh, instrumental in me sobering up, and that was it. And we were on tour somewhere, and I just, just there was the point where I stopped doing the methadone, and I had got, got, gotten it down to five milligrams a day, and then I just stopped. And I felt a little weird for about a week, and, and it was okay. And now, now I've been I've been relatively sober for uh, twenty years or so. But you smoke marijuana on a regular basis still? No, uh-uh. done. 
You're essentially clean. It gets me too stoned. I can't do it. I would like to. I feel like I'm missing something now that it's everywhere. <laughs> but I, I just don't do it. What do I know? Every drug I've ever taken has never lived up to the billing. Everybody says it's so great. Maybe so, you know. I think, I think you know, I think pot interfaces well with being a teenager and uh, in your 20s, there's a different interface. Yeah, we could go down this path, I certainly think, you know, but it makes me wonder, you know, if marijuana was legal everywhere, would everybody still talk about it in the same insider way? I mean, people talk about being drunk, but, you know, being drunk, you're active. Although there's different strands of marijuana, or as they say, cannabis now, you know, it's relatively pacifying and you retreat. No, I, I don't know. So I, I, you know, my kids, I've, in, I tell them, you know, if you're going to get stoned, smoke weed and don't get drunk. Don't drink alcohol. So there's that. How'd you meet your wife? Um, just through the New York scene. She, I met her at a, she was uh, doing some stage work with, Penny Arcade, you know who Penny Arcade is? Mm-hmm. Great individual, very insightful person. Um, just so in a, in a performance situation. And then, you know, we were friends for a while. She's terrific. She's, a, she's an actor. She's in a couple of films and more theater. And you have kids. Did you want to have kids? Or did she say this is something she wants to do? No, it just happened. But I kind of always had it in the back of my head. I was close to my father and mother I, I was really close to my old man and i you know i had dreams of taking care of small living creatures uh, for it was kind of a recurrent theme in my dreams it was just always there how old are your kids today 16 and 18 and what have you learned having kids forget about it just <laughs> you know just all the stuff that one learns it's a lot of stuff just how to negotiate it how to uh you know i'm pretty lenient with them my wife is more of the disciplinarian but they listen to me it's good but you know there's a lot of ups and downs with that too so to what degree are you concerned about the future of your two girls yeah considerably you know because they're still seeking for what they're going to do in life um there's that. The, then there's the climate. <coughs> I mean, we're you know we're okay financially. I'm lucky in that respect, but things are weird. It's a weird time. Well, I guess you were an artist. If your two daughters said they wanted to be artists, that's fine with you. Or you want them like to go to college and get all that? No, they can do whatever the hell they want. You know, that, that's um, that's it. Yeah, my younger daughter has overnight become a real fashionista and this fashion but she's always been a graphic artist and I, the older one has done a bunch of filmmaking and knows how to work final cut really well and that kind of stuff okay you talked about the ups and downs of the money you know having to sell your apartment etc so how's the money today uh we're doing okay you know we did a deal with Merck with uh, right. hypnosis so we sold some aspects and got a you know immediate payback for that not like Bob Dylan money necessarily, but we did okay. Um, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm lucky. I'm in a fucking privileged situation here, which is weird. I mean, I never came from any money. My parents were just lower middle class, but 
all this stuff after all this time. I mean, it really it took quite a while to pay off financially for us, though. I got to say, I, I go into a little more detail in my book, but we, you know, we got screwed over in your very standard showbiz way. So when did you start finally seeing the money? Last 10, 15 years, last 10 years, maybe. Wow. So why did you sell to Merck? How, what was that decision about? I, we were, you know, prompted. Uh, he, got, he gave us a really great multiple, etc. That kind of nonsense. But uh, I don't know. I probably should have held out for more money at this point. It was very early on in this um, uh, moment of people selling, you know. But we we held on to aspects of the of the catalog of the songs, so you know we're still getting licensing fees and that kind of stuff. And what'd you do with the money? Nothing. Just sitting there. Um, and we have a nice apartment in Manhattan. Now and we've got a house up in Woodstock. We've always had, actually the house up in Woodstock was financed by Andy Warhol skull paintings that I sold under market. Also, but that's what happens, you know. Okay, how'd you end up with it, and how'd you decide to sell it? Which the paintings? The painting? Oh, I, I had like four Warhol skulls. You know, I just bought them from Andy. Um, probably really cheap. I, I could have bought all that fucking stuff. You know, I could have bought all the Marilyns and Elvises, but I just didn't have the foresight. I took it for granted because I was around it all the time. And uh, I, so I, I bought four from Andy. I sold two really cheap early on when I was broke. I mean, I was, I was broke really a lot because I, I, I'm not going to go into all the details. It's in the book. You'll read all the details in the book. But I was, didn't, I, you know, I was in financial distress for quite a while. And then in later years, I sold the second two of the skull paintings. And that helped finance the house up in Woodstock. I, but I, what I do have still is the actual skull that Andy painted. I have the actual physical human skull right. in my collection of weird stuff. So did you sell those other two primarily to buy the house? Yeah, just, yes. But yeah, because it was that we were very close to nine eleven when that happened, and you know I probably should have looked around the city for a cheap townhouse at that point, but because everybody was you know running for it. But um, we did want to. We had made a bunch of trips up to Woodstock, and we we knew people in the film community up there, and I have I have old friends up there. You know, a lot of the community. Um, so we just kind of wanted to get the country life thing out of our system. So we did that. We were up there for like 10 years, pretty much straight straight through. Okay, so you say you have the original skull. Are you a collector? I'm not talking about collector like going to Art Basel. I'm talking about, do you have all this stuff? Do you have all the memorabilia from Blondie? I have a lot of stuff. Yes, I have a lot of stuff. I have a really great knife collection. I collect knives. Um, military American custom knives. I'm very knowledgeable in the knife world. And I know a lot of the old knife makers. It's a whole, very niche fucking thing. I write about it in the book. Um, it's what it is. How'd you get into knives? Well, my old man took me to Army and Navy stores when I was a kid, and I think that's where it started out. He bought me a couple of knives early on. Um, 
it just it just went from there. And then in the early in the seventies, not the early seventies, but in the you know mid late seventies, when we were doing the band thing, I started seeing the American custom knife scene, which was in its infancy at that point. But I just found it fascinating, and all these things connected up. And I started going to the knife shows in New York all the time, and I met all the guys, all these great makers. Um, it's uh, it's still going on. It's a it's a it's a pretty big scene still. How many knives do you think you have, and where are they? Thousands. They're you know put away. Some of them are put away. Some of them are out on display, but not a lot. A lot of them are just in storage. Okay, so where do you grow up? Brooklyn. And your parents, their parents were from the old country, or how long was your family here? My old man uh, came from Russia when he was probably, um, you know, five, six years old. My mom was born here. I think her, maybe her, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather may have been born out of the country, but I think my grandmother was born here. I, you know, I traced a bunch of this lineage recently i just very recently had a guy from germany a cousin get in touch with me through one of the dna things that i had done and he had a bunch of facts that i didn't have and he had a copy of my old man's birth certificate which um i don't know when it was made and interesting stuff my old my father had the same birthday as my older daughter which we we were all taken aback by right so it's Unusual for a Jewish boy to be named Chris. I had kids coming up to me when I was a kid and saying, that's a weird name for a Jew boy. I mean, back then, you know. But I think it may have, my parents may have been trying to bypass some aspects of anti-Semitism that they may have been confronted with. And on your birth certificate, is it Christopher or Chris? It's Christopher. And you grow up... And once again, what do your parents do all day? My father was a salesman and a frustrated writer. Um, he had been a labor organizer briefly. I think that's part of the FBI story, you know. I know those guys, they told me, my mom told me, that they met in the party in Syracuse, New York. So, you know, uh, it's kind of all, I wish I had, questioned them more about it, but I didn't. You know, again, I took it all for granted when I was a kid. But my mother was a really great painter, and I just don't have a lot of her stuff left. I have a handful of her work, but most of it got, you know, as we got booted out of different environments, it got uh, just discarded, fell by the wayside. But during her heyday, was this just a passion, or did she actually sell some of her work? No, I don't think she ever sold. She was a window designer in the 40s. She told me she knew de Kooning a little in downtown. Um, she used to do some of the Lord and Taylors and some of those big windows right around the, around the same period that Dali was doing windows in Manhattan too. So, I mean, she was successful with that and she was a really great uh, abstract impressionist painter, but, uh, you know, Picasso-esque in some places, but also experimental in others. But uh, I, have, I have a handful of her things. Do you think that her identity and her, you know, things around, is that what drew, drove you to be an artist? Yeah. I mean, it, the, the, you know, she was, my, di my dad died when I, I was 15. So that was early on and dramatic. And um, 
she was very permissive and she let all my friends gather at my house and hang around and jam and smoke weed. And it was, you know, nice period, but I was uh, caught up in the sixties and moved, gravitated towards the music culture. You said you were very close to your father. What did that look like? It must've been very painful when he passed. Yeah. Yeah. No, it took me a while to, I like, I can, you know, I just had a complete uh, breakdown when I was 19. That was probably spurred on as it was part of that, you know, processing his death, which I probably hadn't reacted to and taking acid and all the general, you know, meltdown of the sixties. What did the breakdown look like? I went, I wound up in a nut house for, you know, in a Beth Israel for three months, did the, but I got a lot of benefits out of it. So I was okay. I got welfare. I got uh, the remainder of my stay in art school paid for by the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation. So, you know, it wasn't a total loss. So what kind of kid were you in school? Good student, bad student, popular, unpopular? No, I was just kind of fringe nerd kid. I don't think I was, I certainly wasn't a good student. Um, I was indifferent to school. I didn't like school at all. I, and then I mean, you're gonna. This is my whole biography here. Um, I got thrown out of Midwood High School for having long hair in 1965. The fucking dean rounded up me and my two or three friends, and he said, "You guys are gonna be crossing the street, and your hair is gonna blow in front of your eyes, and you're gonna get hit by a car, and you have to get a haircut before you come back." And I was really happy and felt very liberated to leave. And I, uh, um, they did somebody from the school, but right at that moment, all those civil rights cases were coming up about long hair. So somebody actually called me from the school and said, okay, you can come back and you won't have to take gym and everything's okay. But meanwhile, my mother found a very cheap private school uptown in Manhattan. So I wound up finishing high school there, which was great. And you graduate from high school, and then what? Then I went to San Francisco, played music with my friends, started a little later dabbling in photography, all this stuff, a lot of, lot of stuff. You mentioned art school. How does that fit in? I, I was in the School of Visual Arts. Well, that was, that, that was financed by the city as a result of my being insane, which was great. And um, my last year, I guess, there, I, last year or two years, you know, I started seeing flyers in the lobby for this thing called the New York Dolls, which I initially thought was a drag act. But then when I finally saw something in the Village Voice about how these guys are really great and the singer is like Mick Jagger, I went to see them. I fell in with this other band called the Magic Tramps, who got a shout out in that miserable vinyl tv show and oddly enough because they're very unknown and never really recorded eric emerson was the lead singer he was a warhol superstar i fell in with those guys i uh, played with them was part of their entourage and did a roadie situation with them on and on and then that led into meeting debbie and then that all that happened okay a little bit slower you graduate from high school you know, your father's past. What are you doing for money? My mom had whatever insurance, social security stuff. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how the hell we got by. She managed to pull together enough income. We moved out of our 
ancestral home and moved to an apartment in Brooklyn that was smaller. That's when we, I lost a lot of her paintings. Uh, but, you know, we managed to get by and still had enough money to finance a couple of trips to California for me. Okay, so the first trip, that was when and what was going on there? 67, went to Haight Street, Summer Love. Okay, so you saw Summer Love and you said, I got to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Heard the song, you know, Flowers in Your Hair. I like yeah, the song. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was there. I remember. So did you hitchhike there? No, no. I uh, The first time I drove out with buddies, with older guys from my Brooklyn neighborhood, which was a nice road trip with some anecdotes around that. Um, then I got to L.A. the weekend of Monterey Pop. Wow. And I was so horny to go to San Francisco, I didn't fucking go. And I always regretted not going to Monterey Pop. But I did go right up. I went up to, uh, I went to San Francisco and had a reasonably good time there for a bunch of weeks and went back to Brooklyn. I think, um, I don't know if I started up art school in that year in between, but I went to, I probably, I may have been my first year at art school in that year in between. I went back to San Francisco in summer of 68, 69. I cracked up completely from taking acid too much, all this kind of stuff. Uh, heard weird things in the White Album, the same as a lot of other people. All of, you know, it was, I was a microcosm of the macrocosm, as they say. What were you doing in San Francisco? And where were you sleeping? With friends who had a, were, had inhabited a big house there. People I knew and people I, it was, I mean, I got off the, I got off the bus the first time I was there in 67, got off the bus, walked across the street into a party. People were dancing to Lucy in the sky with diamonds. It's a true story. Walked into the kitchen. I had a joint. I started smoking with some kid. He said, who are you? I said, I'm me, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wound up, he said, oh, you can stay at my house. You don't have any place to stay. It was like that. Very easy. Okay, well, you know, the summer of love, and then everybody goes in 68, and the media portrays it as negative. What was your experience? Like, once in a lifetime, great? Or, you know, I just happened to be there, so-so? It got dark later on. You know, I mean, I started seeing elements of darkness and predatory people surrounding all this stuff. Even, even probably in '67, but uh, yeah, there was. It was, by, but by '68, it was on the way. You know, it was the floodgates had opened. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. 
Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, obviously, music is everything in that era. When did you start playing an instrument? When I, oh no, that, I had been playing guitar from when I was 12, so 1962. That was before the Beatles. So what motivated you, folk music? Yes, and just being attracted to it, the electric guitar, the essence of the electric guitar was fascinating to me. And I, you know, I would see occasionally one in Brooklyn. I'd look in a basement window and there'd be some guy with a, playing a fancy electric guitar. And that was very interesting to me. And then, you know, I was aware of some of those twangy songs that were on the radio and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I always, West Side Story was such a huge influence on me and everybody. And I feel like it pumped up a lot of people for the British invasion later on. Like people don't get what a big deal West Side Story was for the kids back then. Well, also all, you know, the original soundtrack, original Broadway soundtrack. Did you see the new West Side Story? No, I, you know, I was really kind of hyped for it, but then it sort of gradually fizzled out. Now I'm not, I don't know if I give a shit at this point. Yeah, I don't really feel that way. Anyway, I'm not a huge Spielberg fan anyway. So did you play in bands in high school? Were you any good? Playing with bands, I played with my friends. We famously opened up for the Velvet Underground in, in 1967 at a place called the gymnasium. Um, I had a buddy. I had a buddy, this guy, Joey Freeman, who I grew up with. I knew him for when he was, he was, he was maybe a year younger than me, but I've known him for, you know, 50 odd years. 
he worked for Andy for the factory. And he showed up at my house. We, we all knew he was associated with Andy. And he showed up at my house one day in Brooklyn. And he said, listen, there was an opening act for the Velvets. And we all know who they were, of course. And the opening act didn't show up. Would you guys do it? So we brought our guitars on the subway and went up uptown. I think it's in the East 70s, this old Polish hall. And we opened up for the Velvets. And Maureen Tucker let us turn her bass drum right side up, you know, because she played it like a, like a timpani, you know. And we did a little set. There was hardly anybody there. Uh, after the set, you know, somebody came up and said, oh, Andy thinks you're really great. And that was nice. And uh, the Velvets were great. They were awesome and powerful. Uh, that was it. You know, hanging with famous people is a thing unto itself, which most people never experience. When they experience, they either become tongue-tied or become fanboys or fangirls, and that doesn't work. You know, you talk about, you know, I meet Andy, you know, are you just kind of an artist? You just kind of go with the flow and it fits? I mean, or you say, hey, this he was already Andy Warhol when you met him. Well, no, I mean, I had been seeing Andy since I was a little kid on TV. I mean, I saw him on David Susskind or whatever that was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was aware of that always. And Andy was, you know, very high up there in the ether. But he was also close to the streets, so there was a he. He managed to negotiate this position that he was in. Uh, everybody in New York who was in any kind of the arts had some connection to Andy, one way or the other. So that started out. That whole thing started out early for me, I think. I mean, later on, yeah, I frequently starstruck. Um, I met Peter Dinklage in a gas station, and. <laughs> He was charming and really nice, and and being in my position is great. It's like being a mason or something, because I can just go up to anybody in show business and go, hi, it's me, I'm from Blondie, and they go, oh, okay, yeah, it's you. <laughs> so that's a really great thing. Debbie and me met Liz Taylor when she was on Broadway for the first time. Our buddy Dennis Christopher was in The Little Foxes with her. That was memorable. Um Milton Berle gave me a big kiss. We were at a George Burns. We met George Burns several times. And we were at some uh, toasting situation for him. And Milton Berle was the MC, and we got dragged out on stage. And he grabbed my head and gave me a big kiss on the lips in front of the whole audience, which is pretty nice. There's not many people can say that. So if you talk about all the characters in the factory, Joe D'Alessandro, Edie, whatever, did you know all them? No, not a lot, no, because we were we didn't hook up early on with Andy. He was in the third factory by the time we were seeing him frequently, more in the 80s, probably from around 79, 80 on. Um, I know Joe more from online and talking to him online in this period. So how do you meet Debbie? I went to a show that they were doing with her girl trio thing called The Stilettos. And I went to their first show at a bar on 24th Street, I think. And uh, that was it. And I was very taken with her because she was very magnetic and beautiful. And um, I, they, had, they only had rotating musicians in their band. And I, I, as soon as I was able, I signed up with the band and became the first permanent member. 
You remember what year that was? 73. 73. So 73, the Dolls get their deal. They make their first record for Mercury. Gets a lot of hype. Doesn't happen. The Ramones album. Ramones album was 75, the first one? Yeah, maybe. I'm, I can't. Maybe 75 yeah. or 6. Yeah, maybe 75. So what was the scene like? You know, you went to see Debbie's band Stiletto, but what other acts were going in 73? By the late 70s, it's a whole different world. But what's the scene like in the early 70s? Teenage Lust. You remember Teenage Lust? There was three girls and this guy, Harold. Um, I knew Tommy Ramone from Mercer Arts Center from a band called Butch. And when we started playing at CBGB's, he approached me and said, I heard you found a place to play downtown. He meant CBGB's. And I have this band called the Ramones. And we played with the Ramones at their first gig at CBGB's, which I've only figured out recently because this, all these dates are out there in the world. But that happened um, early, you know, and early, but early on, you know, Eric Emerson, Magic Trams, Teenage Lust. Bands I'm not forgetting, I'm not remembering, rather, Lothar and the Hand people, uh, uh, Silver Apples, right? You know, Silver Apples? Right, right, right. Those guys were around a little earlier. Um, Suicide was around for a long time. They, you know, Al, Al, they, I think they even predate the dolls a little bit. So what were you living on? Then welfare was very helpful. That was pretty much it. Occasional odd jobs, but uh, mostly welfare. Okay. So you go to see Stiletto. You're struck by Debbie. How do you introduce yourself and what do you say? Well, I knew one of the other girls. One of the other girls in the Stilettos was one of Eric Emerson's girlfriends, and they had a kid together. And it was all very incestuous, actually. So, I, you know, I don't know how much I spoke to her that first night, but soon after, I joined up as their guitar player. Well, you had to sell yourself, right? What was your pitch? Well, we were working together at that point, and we just... You see them. You know, you're a peripheral character. How do you say, no, you need me in the band? Uh, it was probably more of the... To Elda, the other girl, Eric's girlfriend, that I... Because she was kind of the leader, the default leader, because she had the loft that they were rehearsing in. Um, but... Debbie's claims to have been had some notice of me and some attraction early on too. Because I had really long hair and I wear eye makeup and the whole fucking other image. I might have been more striking. I don't know. <laughs> and how long after you met her did it turn into a romance? A few months. We were friends for a couple of months. Maybe, maybe a month, maybe one month, two months, somewhere in there. Now, she's, what, five years older than you. That, that's unusual back then. Yeah. Did you notice that? Or, you know, you're in the downtown scene, who cares? No, nah, she looked like she was a little kid. When she was 30, she looked like she was 19. Yeah, believe me, I know. I just want to know what was going through your head. Okay. So now you're part of the group, which has got free flow. When do you start having a plan? Or is there never a plan? No, it was, I mean, the, you know, the dolls going out in the world and not succeeding, or at least going out in America and not succeeding, made everybody sort of step back, pull it back. So the whole New York music scene for several years was just done for each other. And the only people in the audience were other band members and their entourages. And there was a, you know, a peripheral group of friends. But generally, it was 
uh, again, pretty incestuous. But was there a plan? I don't know if there was a plan. We just worked. I mean, the plan was to maybe get a record deal, but that was pretty nebulous. I don't know if, you know, how anybody thought that was really going to happen. And what were you using for material? We wrote songs. It did cover songs, all kinds of stuff. But everybody wrote songs. Had you been writing songs previously, or when did you start to blossom? No, most of that was done because there was a need for it. With the early songs we wrote were with the stilettos. I think the only, the, the big song that we wrote in the stilettos period that carried carried over was In the Flesh, that one that was a hit in Australia later on. So how did it morph in from the stilettos to Blondie? Well, the girls, you know, it was hard to keep maintaining a three-girl situation where they were all taking turns singing leads and stuff like that. And there was a, you know, there was a certain amount of competition involved. And eventually we just split off and the band followed Debbie into the next incarnation. How did it become the name Blondie? Debbie dyed her hair blonde one day, and I mean, we didn't really have a name for a while, and came home and said, all these guys are yelling, hey, Blondie, at me. And that, that, really was, that was really it. Now, how do you end up working at CBGB's? That was pretty early. I remember uh, that was with the stilettos. That was earlier. Um, it was just there. And we, I remember distinctly, I was in the back room of Max's Kansas City, which is where people played. And, you know, we, people played at Mercer Arts. I never, I never we, the Stilettos never played at Mercer Arts. But we did gigs with the Dolls. And we played the 82 Club. You know what the 82 Club was? The 82 Club, I don't know. The 82 Club was an old, uh, not really a drag bar, it was a mafia-owned transvestite bar. Um, I guess you know I don't want to be politically incorrect, but I'm. But it, I don't know if it really was drag as such. But it was female impersonators. I don't know if this is, you know, I don't mean to get. We'll let you off the hook to offend anybody by this terminology. But it. But it was a great situation. There were, it was downstairs in a basement. It was this old mafia-run club. There were photos in there. There was a photo of Abbott and Costello with a drag queen that I was I thought was the greatest fucking artifact that I had seen at that point. So we play. We used to play there. There's very little information out in the world about the 82 Club. It was number 82, I think, Third Street, East Third Street. Uh, but CBs. So we were in the back room at Max's Kansas City, and Elda, the, one of the girls from Stilettos, showed up, and she said, I just was downtown in this bar, and I saw a bunch of guys playing in a band, and they were all dressed like old men, and she meant television. And so we went down to see them, and uh, you know, and then we just got in there and started playing. We, we played at CBGB's every weekend for seven months in a row at one point. Now, the sound of Blondie was different from the other acts downtown. I mean, a lot of them were really punk. Television was thing unto itself. Was it notable, or are you just another band doing your thing? It was really diverse, musically. I mean, the bands, the out of all the big bands, you know, us and the Ramones and Talking Heads and television, it, it was, that's a real big spread of sound and styles. And how do you end up with Private Stock? Um... 
private stock, I guess, I guess we had gotten our manager at that point and we just wound up there. It was early on, you know, I don't know. We might've got picked up by Sire a little later. I don't know, but private stock was a weird sort of vanity label for this guy, Larry Utah, who used to be with Bell Records, I believe with Marty Thau and uh, Seymour. I think they, those guys had all been partners. Um, he didn't really have a clue as to what to do with the allegedly punk act. He, you know, they had they had the fifth of Beethoven. Remember that? Right, absolutely. That was one of their big hits. They had, uh, shit, and they had, oh, God, I can't remember now. I'm blanking. But they had a couple. They had Peter Lemongello. Right, you know right. what Peter Lemongello was? <laughs> Late night TV ads, absolutely. Yep, M.O.R. guy, you know. So, I mean, that was what was on private stock. And, you know, so we were there, and then we got bought by Chrysalis. After the first album, they, they wait, 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 wait. So slow down a little bit. Who was the manager then? Leeds, this guy Peter Leeds. All right. Now Peter Leeds was that a good experience or bad experience? No, it was terrible. But you know, because he continued to be a manager, so it was terrible because uh, he just didn't have good people skills. He had good ideas, and he, but he was just, you know, he was just belligerent. And, uh, he would have been better as a CEO, cranky CEO, CEO of something. I think. Okay, so. You make these two records for private stock. Private stock is... We were in the middle of recording the second one when the negotiations commenced with Chrysalis. How do you get hooked up with Richard Goddard? Uh, gee, I, he was just around. He, um, Craig Leon, was responsible for recording, doing live recordings at CBGB's at one point. There was a CBGB's live album done but by that time none of the big bands wanted to be on this because everybody was dealing with their own contracts and record labels so allegedly there were all these lost tapes somewhere of you know us and television and whatever that were done with a 24 track truck so craig at some point during that was approached by debbie may i think maybe that's the connection with godera craig was hooked up with godera uh, I think that's it. So how did you feel about the capturing of your sound? Feel good about it? Bad about it? Oh, it was good. It was great. You know, I mean, just Goddard had a, a tremendously different approach than Mike Chapman. You know, he with you know he was just very old school. We go in and do the do four takes of something and then pick the best one. It was kind of like that. Okay, how does it get started with Chrysalis? Then Chrysalis bought us from private stock. You know, that just doesn't happen. You know, Blondie looked like it was not going anywhere. How did Chrysalis even get interested? Well, we had the, we had a hit with In the Flesh in Australia. Right. It was a weird, its own weird fluke. Um, you, know, the story, you know, the story of that is that Molly Meldrum allegedly played In the Flesh, which was the B-side of Ex Offender, he allegedly played it by mistake on his show. I asked him, I don't think it was a mistake. I think he knew his audience, and that's just the story. Uh, we also had a video that went with it, too, which was very early on. So you think 
that it was the action in Australia that got Chrysalis interested. It was it was encouraging to them that we had a number one hit somewhere in the world. I think that was part of the package. So you make this switch. At some point, you switch to Shep. Where is that? Um, that was pretty much after we had been established. It was, I guess, it was after Heart of Glass. Was. Right. Okay. Then let's go back. You make this deal with Chrysalis. Obviously, private stock has to be paid off. Are they also paid off out of your own money or theoretical money? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were we were contracted to Chrysalis to do three albums in a a year, so we were always in fucking arrears with this. Right. It was, we never. We were always in breach of contract with those guys. And that led to a lot of stress, too. I mean, that's partly why we were all doing drugs all the time. Elton seems to be the only person who actually delivered on those contracts. You know, you're having big success, and were they really pushing you? Hey, we want three albums a year? No, it wasn't pushing, but it was just uh, it was uh, the fact that we were always, always in default, you know. Okay, how do you get hooked up with Mike Chapman? Chapman was... Probably Terry Ellis also leads, but uh, Terry Ellis a lot. And he came to see us at the Whiskey, and he thought we were funny and amusing. And when we met with him, and that was it. Just, you know. Well, you know, that was when he was the commander. He did hit, hit, hits in England. Well, that was a little later. The commander was a little bit later, but yeah, that was. Right. Well, I've been trying to say yeah, it starts then, and he ends up having Dreamland Records. He really builds his own reputation on top of Blondie. You said his style of working in the studio was different from Goderer's. What was his style? Well, it was very regimented. You know, the, the um, Parallel Lines record was, he was, you know, quite the taskmaster, which we weren't prepared for, but it was. We got great results with that. So how many of those songs were either chosen or written when you started in the studio? There was a, probably a bunch. I don't think any of them were too worked up in the studio. Uh, some of them, you know, but the like, you know, the Heart of Glass demo was floating around for forever. There were very various versions of that out in the world. So how did it turn into the Heart of Glass that we all know? Well, we had this, we had the Roland rhythm machine that's synchronized with this Roland synth. So that went da 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 and then there, and it had an, it was the days before MIDI, but there was a, you know, an, did a trigger, electrical trigger with each other. They, they spoke to each other. So that was part of the putting it together aspect. And did you realize it was, did you hear it in the studio and say, this is going to go? Mm, no. Not really, you know. It held, you know, the Parallel Lines was on the charts for six months before that was released as a single. So, I don't know if anybody got the idea right away. And whose idea was it to get hanging on the telephone? Uh, that was me and Debbie, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, right from the Gun Club, right? right. Had given me a mixtape, and that's that was on this mixtape. And famously, we were in Tokyo in a taxi cab. And I had it. I was playing it on a boombox, and the old cab driver started tapping his fingers on the steering wheel. And I went, "Yeah, okay, this is this is making a connection with this guy. There's something to it." But and I was, I just really loved the original version. 
the nerves or anything. And then, you know, the vocal on that is unbelievable, the way it's shouting. You know, is that something that Chapman got out of you, or did you say this is the way we want to do it? I don't know. I Chapman with Debbie was, I don't think Debbie was forced into as much repetition as the band was. I think, you know, he tried to get a spontaneous emotional content out of her. And how does Fripp end up on Fade Away and Radiate? Well, Fripp had approached us, I think, after a Palladium gig in New York, and we had gotten friendly with him. We did, And he, we did a bunch of shows with him, offbeat things. So it just seemed like a no-brainer to ask him. And that, was, that song was kind of weird and experimental anyway. Phenomenal song, the song I played most still from that album. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, old history, but 
you go through that crazy lawsuit with Frank Infante, what the hell's up there? Well, that was much later. That was, the, you know, they just wanted to, uh, well, it was Nigel also. They wanted to be paid on us moving forward. They got, they were always paid on their historical connection. They're, they're, nobody's trying to not pay them on the stuff that they were, they worked on. But we just thought that, you know, moving forward, touring, whatever, we weren't obliged to pay them for uh, just having worked with us in the past. It hinged on some very weird legal little point. And do you know who Marty Silfin is? No. He was our lawyer. He was, he was great, great character. He wrote various legal showbiz textbooks that are in place to this day. Um, he nailed the case. I mean, none of us really would have had to testify. It could have just been him. The judge was the judge didn't leave the bench. He just said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I can roll now." But supposedly the press was back then that you didn't want Frank to play on the records. Is that true? Well, yeah, we all fell out with those guys, you know. But th no, this was much later. This was going into the no exit period. Okay, at some point you get hooked up with Shep. He makes the movie Roadie. Was it on Eat to the Beat where he made a video for every song? Yes, every song. I think we were the first band to do that. I think the Kinks did it around the same period, but I think we were the first one to do like a specific setup for each song. And working with Shep, good, bad, otherwise? Um, it was good up to a point, you know. What was the point? Well, we just kind of, it just all fell apart, but it was a lot to do with us being drug addicts also. Well, in your heyday before it fell apart, he is big on promotional stuff. And by the same token, you were really his first step outside after Alice Cooper. So did he give enough time and were a lot of his things helpful or is just, you know, he was better than Peter Leeds? No, he was good. He was, you know, I mean, I liked him. It just ended up, unfortunately, uh, there we did. We went to a party on a tank. He got a, he, we, we had some party at some club. It might have been a parallel lines or auto american release party and we they rented a sherman tank and we pulled up to the club astride a actual tank that was a shep thing it was nice okay on eat to the beat you know my favorite song on that is the hardest part can you tell me any backstory there that was just to do a sort of metal funk song i can't really remember the specific inspiration on that, except stylistically. Okay, and then Auto American has the rap on it. That was the thing. I mean, I, actually, the, the only song I really knew was going to be a hit, even before we recorded it, was Tide is High. I just was enamored of the original version, and I just, I, but I was aware of our position at the time, which was, you know, we were all the way up there, and I knew if we recorded this well and put it out, it would be successful. By the same token, at this point, reggae has very little traction in the marketplace. One could say that you broke reggae wide in America. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Then there's the Richard Gere movie, and Call Me is billed as a Debbie Harry solo track. Why? And, and you feel good or bad about that? Because we went in with Giorgio, and he just didn't want to, you know, Giorgio was not like Chapman, who was willing to uh, oversee the band. He just wanted to. He was very. He works very quickly. So we 
we did our version of the stuff, but I'm, as far as I know, he replaced a lot of the stuff and some of our original parts may have inspired the stuff he replaced them with, but I think he used his own guys. He just had, you know, two, two assistants who did stuff. I mean, it's Clem, Clem is on there for sure. Okay. Then you put out a next album and it's a stiff relative to expectations. What was that like? It, it, you know, it was distressing, I guess. Um, the cover really sucked. We just couldn't get, we couldn't get, I couldn't get it off the ground. The cover, the idea for the cover was to have everybody be, get like Rick Baker or one of these really great makeup guys and have everybody be half animal, half human and call it the hunter. Okay. But they just couldn't get that shit together. So it just wound up being this sort of mediocre photograph. Okay. At what point do you realize the album isn't going? Oh, you know, at the same time we were dealing with this drug addiction stuff that was ongoing. We were uh, doing promotion. We were working constantly. You know, there was a lot of headbutting in the band. I mean, somewhere in there is when we parted with Frankie. You know, towards the end there, we the very the very last tour we did without Frankie. Um, you know, it was it was a difficult period. You have any conversation with Frankie and Nigel these days? No, no, I didn't. I mean, that's why the whole, you know, the whole Hall of Fame thing was so fucking weird because I hadn't. At that point, I hadn't spoken to Frankie for 20 years or whatever. And, you know, if, if those guys had really wanted to play with us, I might have considered it. I mean, probably not. But, but if I had heard from them, I might have considered it, you know. Okay. So what was it like for the three, four years we were on top of the world? That was nice. I mean, I remember Marty Thau coming to our fancy house and saying, do you guys realize you can buy anything you want and i hadn't really thought of that and i bought a timpani <laughs> you know as I, as I frequently say now the model for a rock star has changed so much i really wasn't thinking about buying a rolls royce and buying a diamond watch or any of this kind of nonsense back then if i you know if, when i thought about spending money it was just to buy more guitars and recording equipment did you like being on the road not like being on the road it was okay it was, it was we were on the road you know really straight through for several years i mean it was just almost very little let up between with re, re, recording and being on the road it was just it was it was i mean i'm lucky i was a kid so i could put up with that stuff well some people have been around the world and seen nothing. And when you would travel to these different places, would you take advantage? Yeah, sure. We would go. Yeah, we would go around. Yeah, I have a lot of fond memories. All this shit's going to be covered in my memoir. But okay, so if you were in Europe and you had a gig at night, did you say, okay, uh, this is the first time I've been to this town. I'm going to check out the cultural stuff. Yeah, we would go out. We went to, we went to Liverpool. I think I don't know. We were playing nearby. I don't know if the, we. Actually, we're doing a Liverpool game. We saw the remains of the Cavern Club, which at that point was just an empty lot. It was rubble-strewn and all that kind of stuff. So what are one or two peaks from the touring years in the first generation? Bangkok was really great. We were in, we played New Year's Eve in Bangkok and there'd been like a, there'd been a coup there and they, everybody was, had to be off the streets from like, Midnight to five in the morning. There, you know, you weren't allowed out. There was a curfew. And the New Year's Eve that we played, 
the curfew was lifted. And Bangkok, needless to say, is a big party town, and everybody went completely fucking nuts. And it was a really beautiful moment. Okay, how do you decide to hang it up first time around? There was, it was there was no moment. There was ne- it was never addressed in the media. We just were fucked up on drugs. I got really sick. I got that weird uh, right. skin disorder, you know, as a result of uh, having my immune system compromised. That w- it just went, you know. We just stopped for a while, and then. Did a bunch of some Debbie solo stuff after that, and then uh, put it all together later in whatever year that was, 96 or something. Okay, so for that, you know, 10 plus years in the interim, were you just so fucked up on drugs, or did you feel like a has-been, or did you feel like royalty? What did you feel like? I mean, we never really made, I always felt like we never made it to the A-lists anyway, you know, regardless of what the public perception might be. Um, I always felt like we were this, you know, large cult phenomena. Uh, I, you know, we weren't completely fucked up on drugs, but, you know, it's ups and downs. Um, I don't know how what I felt like necessarily. It, it just, it was just all, you know, everything was part of everything else. It just seemed like an extension. Okay. And now you have another career as a photographer. How did that start? I was just always doing it. I, you know, I was, even when I was a little kid, I was screwing around with little brownie cameras. Then I had a guy I grew up with named Dennis McGuire, and he was a brilliant young photographer. And he still is. He's a, he's a master photographer. He apprenticed with Arbus and studied with uh, Gary Winograd and all this stuff. And he's he was... Uh, you know, and a big influence on my early photographic days. And I just started carrying cameras around around 1968 or so, 68, 69. And, you know, it's one thing having a good eye. It's another thing being technologically savvy. Are you also technologically savvy, savvy or are you more point and shoot? Yeah, no, I mean, I you know, I knew your basic stuff. I never developed my own film. I would just, I would print a lot, but I, I would never, I would always just send a film out to labs but i you know i knew about f-stops and iso and all that stuff and is there some greater uh acknowledgement you're looking for in the photographic world no i did good i mean the books were very popular at a really big show in london at the somerset house that was really terrifically attended um you know i'm okay with where i stand i could use more instagram followers but beyond that you know it's, uh, I'm okay. So how did it end with you and Debbie? We, we just kind of ran out of steam. It was a lot, a lot of this drug stuff. I think we fell out of synchronization. And But a lot of times, I mean, I have a hard time connecting with the exes. How was it after you were disconnected? Well, I was pissed off for a week or so, but then we, you know, just formed a new connection. And we've been always been friends. We were always, we always had this, like, I've never had a lot of fights with Debbie. You know, we always are very connected. And we have a similar mindset and a similar sense of humor, and we just get along. How'd she feel when you got married? Oh, she was okay with that. I mean, that was much later. I mean, we both had been dating and doing different 
having different relationships. Okay, so where do you see yourself? You say you see yourself as a B player in the rock world, but you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, where do you see yourself, and what do you still yearn to achieve? I just, you know, I don't know. I mean, it'd be nice to have a little. I guess I have a small bit of influence. You know, I have people that pay attention to my stupid commentary online. Uh, but I just, you know, want to be happy and have a have a good time. I, you know, my energy level is weighed down now. I don't know if I'm going to do the touring with the band going forward. I will definitely do recording, but I, I'm not sure I'm going to go out with the touring situation. I just have kind of had it with airports and hotels at this point. But I just want to be happy and have the family be safe and happy. Okay, but you are touring imminently, right? Yeah, no, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I don't think I'm going to do it. I missed a few shows here and there recently. I just, I don't have the energy. I have fucking heart bullshit. I have, you know, murmur of the heart, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I take medications for that. It's a little fatiguing. I don't know if I'm going to go out with the guys. They'll have a replacement. How did you discover you had a heart issue? Um, how did I discover? Just getting a couple of like sort of semi-fainting things, low blood pressure checkups. I just have a AFib, you know? Oh, AFib is what you yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't have any, I have never had any kind of surgery or anything like that. I just, they just keep it. Steady with medications. And if you don't go out, do you still get paid? Yeah. How does everybody else feel? I mean, you know, Bon Jovi does it without Richie Sambora. Are the rest of the band fine if you don't go out? No, I mean, I'm there, you know, it's, but we, we, the last couple of shows that I didn't do, they, we got some kid who's really great and he just replicates the parts. But yeah, no, I mean, I feel, you know, I don't want to let the fans down and let the band down. But I'm in, completely involved with this next bunch of recordings that we're working on. So, and, and you know, and I'm, again, I'm pitching this memoir. And I, then we have another, I have another photo book coming out in October, I'm told, which is the, our uh, adventures with Giger, you know, when we did the cuckoo stuff. So I, I'm still in the mix. Okay. And how often do you play the guitar? Occasionally. <laughs> I was, I was the last couple of days. It doesn't go away. It's total muscle memory. I'm kind of amazed. I, I could not play for months and then just pick it up and be the exactly where I left off. I mean, Johnny Ramone told me he never played except when he was doing shows or recording. Period. That was it. Since you saw them from the beginning, was there any evolution or was that the act from gig one? Yeah, no. It, no, yeah, There was an evolution and they got tighter and tighter. And then the whole Joey phenomenon was so great to see him, you know, because he was very awkward and much more tentative in the beginning and to see him become this powerful dominant rock god by the end of the whole thing was fucking amazing you know well the weird thing is though they're all dead you think there must have been something in the water in the van yeah, or something. queens you know i don't know what you're gonna say i don't know about that shit you know no my wife was my wife is from queens also and she had thyroid cancer but we i think we also think that it was from being so close to the towers during 9-11 because we were living right there. So we were in the area that is, uh, you know, suggested for that kind of stuff happening. And how is she now? Yeah, she's okay. But she's got to take, uh, you know, the uh, Synthroid 
forever. So in terms of other art forms like movies and streaming television, you spend a lot of time there, really? Yeah, yeah, no, we watch, we watch fucking everything. What can you recommend? The new Ben Stiller thing, Severance. It's really great. I've only watched two of those. That's totally great. I love fucking Peacemaker. Peacemaker is the greatest goddamn thing. Um, John Cena is like uh, Cary Grant as a bodybuilder. I mean, he has got this old world Hollywood charm that's just fantastic. I had no idea that that guy was, you know, up to that level, but he's really great. And, you know, James Gunn is great. All, all those guys are great. And then, you know, of course, Succession, we're big fans of um, a lot of stuff. I really like Power of the Dog. Power of the Dog is great. I love the Korean movies. You know, I'm watching this series starting last night. Did you watch Squid Game? Yeah, sure. They say this is bigger than Squid Game in South Korea. The show called Hellbound, you know this one? Yeah, I saw Hellbound. I can't really remember it, though. Well, don't ruin it for me. I'm only like a third in, but it's like, it's only six episodes. Really wild. That's one where they tell you when you're going to die. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, the original is the anime Death Note. You know Death Note? No, I don't. Death Note is an old anime manga whereby the guy gets a notebook from hell or wherever it is and if you write somebody's name in it they die and it goes goes from there right the same thing so i know you're into the modern music but having seen the scene for 60 years what do you think about the music and the music business today relative to yesteryear there's just there's a lot of great stuff you know i i always hear stuff uh, i just watched um house of gucci and there was a fucking fantastic song by somebody named Alice, an Italian song, Italian language song in there that I just have been playing over and over again since seeing the movie. And that was the most, that was my biggest takeaway from the movie was the song. Uh, there's, there's great stuff out there. Well, I guess, you know, the ethos is different. Now the music is a step to create a brand to sell tchotchkes and other stuff. And it's very different than it was during your era. The model for the rock star is a completely different thing. You know, it's now it's all about bling or whatever. I mean, I'm consistently amused by Kanye. That thing the other night was very, was amusing. His Let's go just a little bit deeper. Yes, it was amusing, but isn't it sad to see a bipolar guy reported on in the news ad infinitum to, you know eventually it's going to turn out bad if it hasn't already yeah no it's it's uh, you know but the guy has so much influence um like i say it's like you know it's like giving an arsonist gallons of gasoline you know he putting him in this position he um it's bizarre but maybe it was always going on it's just a little more in your face now Maybe these kinds of things were always happening. Well, what do you think is drawing everybody to Kanye? He's successful. He does. He's is a genius. He does a lot of great stuff. But people are also absorbed in the drama, and you know, coming out in front of thirty thousand people and complaining about your ex's boyfriend <laughs> and how you're going to beat him up is certainly its own level you know well it's the train wreck i mean you can't stop paying attention to the train wreck but eventually you know it hits a wall 
Okay, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate your message, as I say. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.